Hello, everyone. My name is Wes Bush. I'm the author of the book on product-led growth, and I have none other than my co-host, Bramley. And today, we have the lunch edition with John, <laughs> who is the VP of product at Optimizely. We caught him right at lunchtime, and so he might be chewing when answering. <laughs> I will do my best not to chew. Yeah. So for those that don't know you, John, can you just share a little bit more about your story about how you became the VP of product at Optimizely? Yeah, happy to share it. Been a bit of a windy journey here for me. So I got my start in product management almost a decade ago now at Microsoft. So I started at Microsoft as a product manager. They call them program managers there. I was up in the Seattle area. And I joined Microsoft right in the wake of a famous Agile software launch, Windows Vista. No, it's actually one of the most famous waterfall launches of all time. Everyone kind of experienced Vista back in the day. It was a multi-year project. The company spent forever working on it. They built this product. They put it in a box. They shipped it in terms of like a billion copies all over the world people use. It landed in everyone's hands and they hated it. They hated it from a user experience perspective and they also hated it from a bug and functionality perspective. It had lots of little issues. Your printer wouldn't work. Your zip drive wouldn't plug in. Start menu was different. Um, It provoked, as we probably all remember, a huge backlash. So I joined Microsoft right in the wake of that experience. And what I saw firsthand was how this entire company of 100,000 people had to reevaluate how it built software kind of from scratch. So we can't do shrink-wrapped software anymore. We can't do a three-year cadence from idea to customer validation. None of that's going to fly anymore, especially because there was this whole new breed of cloud-native companies that was running circles around Microsoft at the time by deploying code weekly or daily, validating it immediately, and using practices like A-B testing along the way. And so when I joined, I was actually excited to dive into the part of Microsoft that was actually the attempted tip of the spear, trying to consciously emulate these other companies. Um, and that was the Bing division of Microsoft. And everyone knows that Bing was a bit of a ripoff of Google in terms of what the product was. But what not everyone knows is that it was more of a ripoff of the culture of Google. It was very intentionally Microsoft trying to build that online services muscle and build agility into everything that we did. So it was cool kind of being there on the ground up and seeing that process. To give a couple examples, the time I was there, we went from shipping code every three months to shipping code daily on certain teams. We went from running essentially zero A-B tests every week to running hundreds every week. And along the way, Bing actually tripled its market share. And what I think almost nobody knows is, because uh, stories early on were so funny, is that the company went from losing over a billion dollars every quarter to actually being profitable as of the last few years. And a lot of that was this embrace of a different way of building software, moving fast, validating ideas, continuous improvement, all of that. So I kind of got to see firsthand this world of continuous innovation, aggressive delivery. Also saw how hard it was to adopt in a company of Microsoft scale. And we're still talking about a technology company. So it kind of dawned on me, everybody's going to have to work this way from the smallest companies to the biggest ones. Nobody's ready for it. That's kind of what drew me to Optimizely. As an A-B testing practitioner myself, but also someone who saw the potential of the market, I wanted to be part of driving this transition across the world, getting companies big and small to actually embrace progressive delivery and experimentation. So in 2014, I made the jump, moved down to San Francisco, and joined Optimizely. We were about 100 people at the time. I joined as an individual product manager, one of the first ones we hired, working on all various parts of our platform. 
the time we were very marketing focused. So we were building A-B testing tools for growth marketers to do pretty basic conversion rate optimization. But over the past few years, the way we've kind of grown and changed is actually building up much more of a muscle in product experimentation. It's helping developers, product managers, data scientists actually optimize their user experiences, validate new product launches, roll out new features safely. And so I've seen the company kind of grow and change all through that cycle. We're now a little over 400 people. Uh, we're a much bigger company. And now I manage a group of product managers, which is a cool change. So happy to dive more into any of those pieces. Amazing. I love that backstory, especially going from first Vista to Bing and that amount of experiments that you basically went from, okay, not launching an experiment very often to getting to one every single day and then start launching hundreds every single week. So for a lot of product-led businesses, one of the most common things I see again and again is people just have this culture of experimentation. They want to see what works, what doesn't. And so for the, the people listening who don't quite have that in their team, how do you go about building that culture of experimentation? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not something you can just flick on overnight. Certainly at Microsoft, it took many, many years and it's still a work in progress. And honestly, you can hear it optimizely, which is, you know, a San Francisco tech startup whose whole DNA has been about experimentation from the beginning. We still suck at it in all kinds of ways. Uh, it's a constantly evolving challenge. The way we like to think about it here is that it's sort of this journey and everyone can take kind of that next step in the journey. So for a team that's never done any kind of experimentation and works on a very sort of waterfall mindset, it's how can we just try launching things in smaller increments? So we're a big fan of this term progressive delivery. It's kind of a new one out there in the industry. Um, We've all heard of continuous delivery probably, but progressive delivery is the idea of take all your product launches, all your software delivery, and break it into smaller pieces that you can get some kind of validation on. And validation can take many different forms. The simplest kind of validation of all is just take your mock-up to a real person, one of your users, one of your customers, even somebody on the street in a coffee shop, even just another coworker, and get feedback on it. That's what it means to like work in small pieces and adjust from there. But then how can you integrate that into every part of that software development lifecycle? So do you really have to spend three months coding something in its own feature branch before you deploy it? Or could you put small parts of it in your interface earlier behind a feature flag and then turn them on gradually as you get more pieces in? How could you build just the minimum part of your product to even validate that the demand is there? I think for every team, there's some kind of next step they can take that just gets them a little further along the way. And that's how you build up this culture. It's just those incremental steps that you add up over and over. That totally makes sense. You know, one of the big mistakes that companies can make or teams can make about experimentation is choosing the wrong metrics to optimize for. I'm curious what your tips are for those teams that are, you know, trying more experiments to picking the right kind of metrics to use for their experiments. Yeah, it's a great question. There's kind of two different challenges I see with picking the right metrics. One of them is that some teams will just only pick one metric that is sort of impossibly far from the actions that they're taking. And so it's incredibly hard for most teams to influence. And the other one that's even worse is they'll choose something that's easy to measure that doesn't really correlate with company success. So, you know, an interesting example of this might be a retailer that just measures people clicking the add to cart button and buying something. So obviously, if you're selling stuff online, people adding more stuff to their cart is great. 
but do they go all the way through and purchase? That's question number one. And then do they actually purchase things that have a good margin for the company? And then go even further, do they then return those products or do they keep them? It's really easy to just have this myopic focus on one thing up front and not think about kind of the long-term or eventual consequences. So the advice I always give is start from a North Star metric that guides your entire business, which is usually some kind of acquisition or retention or conversion, whatever it is that ultimately you know, your company's board cares about, your shareholders care about, what's the thing that they're paying attention to? And then break that down into a tree. So what are the subcomponents of that? In that same e-commerce example, maybe your overall revenue is that North Star, but you can break that down into some kind of conversion rate of people buying things, but also a cart size and then a return rate. And then break those down even further into their component parts and give teams a way to own those. And then the other one is make sure that you actually take the time to reevaluate these metrics. Every time you make a change that moves these metrics, ask yourself, was this actually the right change? I think there's this misconception that if you start doing A-B testing analytics, you can just start throwing all your product judgment out the window. Uh, but it could be further from the truth. These are tools for validating your hypotheses that are grounded in some kind of customer or user intuition. So check that the metrics are still aligning with that. And you can see a mismatch. It might be that your metrics are wrong. They could be measuring the wrong thing. My favorite example of this that's recent is Facebook. So Facebook chose to have a North Star metric that was basically about time spent in app. So how many minutes every day were you spending in Facebook looking at posts, liking things, or you know, engagement metrics, like how many like buttons or comments you did. And as everyone knows, Facebook has gotten a ton of flack over the past couple of years after the election and even beyond it for essentially optimizing for engagement rather than the things that they claim their mission to be about. And so now that they're reframing their mission as building a community, they're looking at very different metrics about the strong connections people form, the time they spend in groups to sort of reel in that metrics-driven culture to focus on what their product values actually are. Interesting. And so for a company that is just, uh, let's say they're a smaller business, like how do you really prioritize and figure out like what are those metrics you need to start focusing on to optimize first? Well, the irony is that I think actually smaller businesses usually have an easier time of this because they usually have a real clear sense of what it means for their business to survive or thrive or die. They know that they need to get sales to a certain point or they need to get this many users in to raise their next round of funding or whatever it might be. And so they often have that urgency. It's actually the big companies where I see the struggle because in a big company, you can just get swallowed up inside that. You know, you can feel like whatever your team does, it's not really making a big impact to any of those things. And so when I talk to people at bigger companies, it's all about how can you anchor your team's work to some part of that experience in that bigger tree. With small companies too, you also just always want to keep sight of user experience. And there are metrics you can find that correlate directly with user experience. An example of this is task completion. If you have an app that's designed to do a certain thing, you can measure how long it takes to do that thing and make changes to see if you've actually sped it up. The classic A-B test example of this is like filling out a form where you can remove fields or break them up into steps or autofill certain pieces and directly measure the impact you're having. And that sort of immediate metric usually correlates with some more downstream result that you care about. Interesting. And so what are your best practices around prioritizing experiments? Because if you're at that scale, you're running like hundreds of experiments every single week. I imagine there's 
there's a method to the madness. <laughs> it's not just like, yeah. let's, let's keep launching experiments as many as you can. Let's aim for the number, not the quality. <laughs> totally. It's almost never the right idea to just throw as many experiments as you can at the wall. And I think it's worth calling out, we didn't have one centralized backlog of 300 experiments a week that we were pulling on. The way you get to that kind of number is by decentralizing across a big product team. And in the case of Bing, there were thousands of developers working on that product in various places, all made up of a bunch of teams. So what I would say more is that each sort of feature team of, say, a product manager and five or 10 developers and a designer was planning kind of one or two experiments at a time. And the other thing to keep in mind is that at the successful companies, you don't have a separate product roadmap and external roadmap. They converge into the same thing. You have a set of hypotheses or bets about how to improve the user experience or move some ultimate goal. And you can call those experiments, you can call them features, but either way, they're just things you're building to improve. And then you have some strategy for actually validating that you've had the impact you want to. So I hypothesize that our navigation is causing users to get lost and they can't find thing X, Y, Z. So we're going to redesign that nav bar to be horizontal instead of vertical. Um, and we're going to measure if we did that by seeing if they adopt that new thing, but also if there's no drop to the other things. So that's a feature on our backlog, but now it's also an experiment and it's just integrated deeply. And so in some ways to say that we have 300 experiments a week just means that we were developing across thousands of people, 300 new features or add-ons in any given week and validating them constantly. That's kind of the sweet spot. Many teams aren't quite there yet. They're at some earlier stage where they may be in what's called a feature factory. So they're mostly just churning out new features like cooks in the back of a kitchen churning out orders, don't always know what impact they're having. And in those cases, you usually want to start with some intermediate step. Like, what if we just took a handful of new features we build and wrap them in some kind of feature flag, roll them out to 50%, and then measure if that 50% behaves any differently, or maybe just doesn't behave any worse than the ones that hadn't. That kind of control treatment approach is a great place to get started. You can build up that culture of let's test out multiple variants and ingrain this in how we do all of our product development. I'm curious what your suggestion is. You talked briefly about that for companies that are just early on when your website isn't getting enough traffic. What are your suggestions for running experiments when there isn't enough traffic to produce statistically significant results? Yeah, to be frank on this one, I would not be relying on A-B testing too much. I think that when you're at small scale, especially pre-product market fit, talking to people in person or in this new era over something like Zoom is the best way to get validation of your ideas. It's actually one of the best things I've loved about working in B2B, having come from B2C, is that whenever you have doubts about something, you don't need to run a sample of 10 million people and try to like read the tea leaves of some numbers. You can just go call up five people and ask them what they think of something and get like really raw, unfiltered feedback. And I think if I were at you know a 10-person company or a new app searching product market fit, I'd be doing that constantly and not really doing much A-B testing. And if I did do A-B testing, it would be mainly on the acquisition side. So what kind of ads am I running? What's my messaging on my landing page? Those kinds of things. I think this technique of sort of like A-B testing and even gradual rollouts is better suited to larger, more established companies. And I'm not saying a huge Microsoft scale, you know, even a 50-person company is probably in this category, but um, it's better suited to those kinds of businesses where you've already got some steady stream of users, and now you're trying to understand the impact on that existing base. 
And, you know, just to throw out a rough heuristic, I think you're looking at wanting hundreds of thousands of users coming through at least to get meaningful value out of A-B testing. Otherwise, you should be using some other technique to do this. So most of the people listening, they're going to be working as B2B SaaS companies. Yeah. And so specifically for product experiments, even let's say if they check the box on having hundreds of thousands of visitors on their website, yeah. they're not going to get hundreds of thousands of users into their product. Yeah. And so they run into this interesting problem of just how do we even structure these product experiments? Because we know, we know for a fact we're not going to get to statistical significance or, I mean, we're not going to wait for like six or 12 months. They just want to learn very quickly. So people who are stuck in that situation, which is most people who are going to be listening, there's definitely what you suggested is talking to more people. I'm all for that because I think you can learn so quick if you do approach that. But is there anything else that you've seen that people can do to really try out a lot more of these product experiments in a little bit more of a, a scientific way? Yeah, definitely. And I think actually, especially in those cases, there are ways to do experimentation, despite what I said. One thing to keep in mind is that there's this inverse relationship between how drastic your changes are and how much traffic you need. So when you hear about the Google's or Netflix's A-B testing, they're looking for very sensitive changes, a 0.2% change in somebody you know, uh, resubscribing at the end of a month. And at Netflix, where you have hundreds of millions of users, you have the precision to be able to measure that. For a B2B SaaS company, you do not care about a 0.2% improvement and you couldn't measure it anyway. But if you think about some of these SaaS products, and we're one of these as well, you can actually make pretty drastic changes that you can measure even at smaller scale. If you think about in particular like user acquisition and growth and go one level beyond sort of like a marketing site to sign up, but someone's in-product experience, particularly for product-led companies, you might have you know hundreds of people signing up for a free plan every week And you can actually measure changes to that cohort if they're drastic enough, even at that relatively small scale. Uh, An example is, you know, we'll do things like test out a wildly different onboarding flow where we send you into our documentation versus something in product. And even with hundreds of users, if you're making a change that can cause a, say, 20% change in activation rates, you can see it at that scale. I actually recommend playing with a sample size calculator, but it's actually very possible at that results. The other thing to keep in mind is there's kind of this gold standard of 95% significance that people tend to key into with A-B testing. And honestly, that's based in scientific uh, studies, especially medical trials, where you really want to be sure about something and don't want to screw up. The software is different. For many of the decisions we make, it's totally fine to have uh, 80% or 75% or whatever it is, confidence in the changes you're making. It may be enough to just do no harm and have the chance of making improvements. And so you can use A-B testing as more of a guardrail. And this is where A-B testing kind of merges into this other world of rollouts and progressive delivery. So you can say, I'm not going to wait months to A-B test every change I make, but I will roll out every change I make to 50% and just monitor some key metrics. And if anything goes really wrong or out of bounds in that process, I'll roll back. Maybe I'll only see cases where metrics tank by more than 20%, but that's okay because anything else... It's too small to make a big difference anyway. Interesting. And so one thing you made me think a lot about is just the first principle. So if you boil certain things down for specific products, I mean, the common example is like Amazon. What are they going to invest billions in for next year? It's going to be giving your packages to your door faster. They know. 
you'll always want that. So they invest and experiment on like, what are some things they could do to get you that outcome? And I think for a lot of B2B SaaS companies, it comes down to, let's reduce the friction. It takes for you to experience the value of your product. So I think in terms of even just experiments, if you can help get people towards something that you know for a fact that they want to experience that outcome, it can help you a lot without having to understand like, okay, do we have to really uh, A-B test this? If it's really that straightforward and it's going to help them experience the value that much quicker, sometimes I've seen it's just better to, to go for it and help your customers experience that value faster. So I'm curious on your thoughts about that for first principles. Like, do you think about that whenever we're launching experiments? And like, what are those first principles of experimentation and optimizing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think another way of describing what you're saying is that there's really these two different things we're talking about when we talk about A-B testing or experimentation. One of them is sort of optimization, which is about, we already had this well-functioning thing. Let's make it 5% better. Um, and you think about Amazon, they do that kind of optimization all the time. They are constantly trying to tune their supply chain logistics, constantly trying to tweak their recommendations algorithm, their web page performance. And for an Amazon-sized business, a 5% improvement would be massive. And part of what's so impressive about Amazon is they've just piled up one 5% improvement after another in every part of their business to become totally dominant in what they do. These things really compound. But like I said, for like a smaller SaaS business, you're not always in that optimization game right away. Then there's a second kind of experimentation, which is what I would call validation or confirmation, which is we already have a strong sense of a problem or a need. We're going to make the change, but let's use this as a safety net to confirm that we actually did it. And that's what works best in these scenarios. And absolutely, you're not going to get the right answer by throwing things at the wall. You have to start that process with a really strong intuition of what the problem actually is, grounded in talking to your users. But then you can use these tools to actually validate that you solve the problem the way you want it. You know, like I was picking on Vista earlier, but the truth is Vista was grounded in tons of user research. I mean, there were lots of people whose whole job was talking to Windows users and hearing their frustrations about Windows 95 or whatever came before that, Windows 2000, and addressing them. The problem was the execution mixed the mark and they didn't have that tool for confirming that their solution actually conformed to where they were going. It was too easy to stay inside their bubble and get confirmation bias. So being able to anchor their strong beliefs about how to fix a problem with some kind of objective metric or test would have been critical. Interesting. And so the first part of this chat is really focused on like experimentations, how to run them. And the part I want to focus a little bit more on now is around the culture. So you mentioned at Microsoft, they had thousands of engineers working on these products and it resulted in thousands of recommendations for potential experiments. And so one piece of feedback I keep hearing from these product-led companies is they want more people involved. They want more people suggesting these changes and really advocating like, hey, I, I saw a way to improve this company in some capacity. Let's start logging this and moving forward with it. So for a company that doesn't have that yet, like, where do you even start with that? Yeah. One of the most important things in democratizing experimentation and building this culture is making anyone of the company feel like they have an outlet for suggesting improvements. And then it doesn't even matter if you A-B test those improvements. You can research those improvements. You can like go feel heard about those improvements because it unlocks this different way of thinking. So I've seen a lot of great ways of doing this. And many companies, they have a wall of ideas with post-its where everybody can fill it in. 
at more remote teams, they're using spreadsheets and Jira boards to capture these things. Actually, Optimizing, we have an entire project, just a product just around ideation. We call it Optimizing Program Management. And it's basically a Jira-style board just for capturing experiment ideas and then ranking them along different parameters, like um, what's the potential for this to move the needle, how much effort is involved, and helping an experiment program manager actually source these ideas from different places. I generally find that especially for SaaS businesses, B2B in general, there's a lot of impact in letting folks who are not directly in product make these suggestions. So you have technical support folks, you have customer success managers, you have salespeople who are getting all these ideas and giving them some kind of outlet is really powerful. And then just as important, you need someone whose job it is to actually take those ideas and do something with it. So most companies we work with have at least one experimentation program manager, someone who's basically owning that backlog and collating those ideas. Or in some cases, it's product managers on various teams who capture those for their area. And they'll often set goals of let's turn at least two of these into experiments every quarter or every month so that we can have that progress and show that progress to everyone suggesting these changes. Interesting. And so one of those experiments that someone on that team suggested actually gets implemented. Like, is there anything on your team where they get recognized or anything beyond that of just like, oh, thanks for your idea kind of thing? Yeah, you can see this at all kinds of different scales. So, you know, we'll do internal celebrations that are just, you know, in Slack, we'll show a big trophy emoji and say, this is an awesome idea this person suggested, and they got these results. Sometimes we'll do quarterly awards for the best experiment and the quote-unquote worst experiment, which is like often the biggest learning. The one that we thought would work, but ended up taking things, hugely valuable, um, or the most creative ones. We've seen a lot of people actually hand out like, the kinds of trophies you would get at a toy store for like a kid's birthday party. You can dress up as experimentation awards. But then the more serious you get about this, the more it becomes much more significant rewards. Like when I was at Bing, the way you got promoted was by running great experiments. You could not get to the next level of the organization without having a provable impact on the metrics we cared about. And so the way you would get promoted was you said, I ran this experiment and that one and that one. And in aggregate, they got us X million more whatever the metric was. Not every company is ready for that. And that has some downsides. It requires you having a really clear North Star and everyone working towards it. But in general, you get what you reward in your organization, whether through Slack emojis or cold hard cash. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to really just share how to approach experimentation. I honestly really enjoyed the stories of even just the background at Microsoft with the good compare contrast between Vista and then Bing and where you're headed right now optimizely. So this has been an amazing chat. And so for the folks listening who want to learn more about you, where can they find out more? Yeah, well, I've read a couple of posts about this on the Optimizely blog. So maybe I can send you a link to that to put in the sort of show notes for this. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the best place to start. And they can always shoot me a message or follow me on Twitter at uh, That's John Sense. And uh, they can stay tuned with that. Perfect. Well, thanks so much. And now you can get to your lunch. You haven't had a awesome. plate yet. <laughs> well, thank you guys. It was great chatting. I really enjoyed it too. Likewise. Likewise.